Here we are on the Feast of Trumpets, an exciting day, a triumphant day, as the song said, but also a day of dark clouds and sober warnings. The trumpet itself symbolizes a call to arms, as we know, a time of war, as was explained this morning. At the end of the age, during the day of the Lord, seven trumpets will be blown, and they are to get our attention. They will get the world's attention and signal a time of war and violence. They will be a warning. They are a warning now. That's why we are given this understanding, and that's why the message that we preach has a strong warning component to it. It's not just smooth words. One of the fundamental understandings of prophecy that we have in the work that God has given us to do is that in the end time, a German-led European superpower will, will attack the United States and attempt to take over the world. I'd like to start out as we begin this afternoon to ask the question, how do we know How do we in this work know what Germany will do? After all, Germany is a peace-loving country, an ally of the United States, and the West has been committed to democratic principles, has a strong tradition of individual rights enshrined in law, and been a peaceful ally and strong ally of the United States for decades. Germany has been a shining example, actually in some ways more respected than the United States. In polls, there was a BBC poll taken in May of 2013 where Germany emerged as the, quote, most popular country in the world. Another in January of 2016, taken by, I believe it was U.S. News and World Report, Based on 75 different criteria, Germany took the top spot, earning the title the best country in the world. How could the best country in the world possibly do all the things that we are saying it will do? You know, I have family from Germany. My great-grandmother came over from Germany to the United States just before World War I, uh, just before the war broke out. Uh, Her ship that she was on was one of, at least the way the story goes in our family, one of the last ships that uh, left just before uh, World War I began across the Atlantic. Uh, She spoke German when we were growing up. And when we'd go to her house and love visiting with her, and and whenever she and my great aunt didn't want us to know what they were talking about, they would speak in German, and we we had to figure out, well, if we're going to know what they're talking about, we're going to have to learn it someday. A lot of good memories with my, my great-grandmother. She made some unbelievable German donuts they called greppels, and they were amazing, truly amazing. Her family came from a part of Germany called Schwabia, and along the Danube River, so when we were kids... Uh, growing up learning our instruments, we were able to be involved in a, a German ethnic concert band in, in Milwaukee, a lot of Germans in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
called the Donauschwaben Youth Band. Great cultural experience. We played for concerts and picnics and all sorts of outings. We learned to dance the, the waltz and the polka and, and uh, just a, a lot of great things, a part of our heritage. <clears throat> My mother's maiden name is Ochs, O-C-H-S, a German name. Can't get around that. That's not Irish or anything Scottish. It's, it's a German name. And yet, for all the things that I appreciate about Germany, the truth is some very, very dark things will happen regarding Germany before it's all over. And we know that. Germany will rise again, will attack modern Israel and bring the world into World War III and on the edge of extinction. Where do we get that? How do we understand those prophecies? Of course, the Feast of Trumpets is crucial to that. The Feast of Trumpets teaches us about the coming rise of the beast, German-led beast power. It teaches us why it will appear and what its end will be. And it gives us an understanding of the warning that we must preach to Israel, modern Israel, and all the world. So for the sermon today... Let's talk about trumpets and the beast in Europe. Trumpets and the beast in Europe. Of course, if you haven't read or haven't read recently the booklet that the church produces, Dr. Uh, Mr. John O'Gwen wrote uh, some years back, The Beast of Revelation, Myth, Metaphor, or Soon Coming Reality. Please read it. It's much more detailed than we can uh, get into in one uh, short sermon. A lot of fascinating <clears throat> research and detail that Mr. O'Gwen wrote. A very, very, very helpful. A fantastic booklet. You need to read it if you haven't, or just review it, especially young people if you haven't read it yet. To get some background, let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to go back to a prophecy that the prophet Daniel was given. And we read about it back in Daniel chapter 2. We have to start way, way back. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was given this, this vision, this dream. He couldn't understand it. He started threatening the wise men with death if they could not just tell him the understanding, but also the dream itself. And so uh, Daniel got very concerned, and he beseeched God. And God gave him the understanding and it spared their lives. And in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31, he starts to explain to the king. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away. No trace of them was found. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, we don't have to wonder what the dream was because... He explained it. 
Verse 37, you, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom and power and strength and glory, and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. You are the head of gold. So clearly the first uh, kingdom that this was describing was Babylon itself. And as we read, it's, it's common knowledge uh, among commentators that this is then describing four world-ruling kingdoms, starting with Babylon and then uh, the Medes and the Persians in verse 39. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of, of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. That's the Greco-Macedonian Empire. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And that's the Roman Empire. Again, this is not complicated. It's, it's fairly common knowledge. And then it says, verse 41, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided... Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings... Now, he was talking about the toes, so how many kings is he referring to? Ten kings. In the days of those kings... At the very end, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So this prophecy was going all the way from the time of the Babylonians until the return of Jesus Christ himself. That's the last kingdom, the fifth kingdom, that would, that would take over, that would crush all the others. Verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. An astounding prophecy that Daniel was given that really would span about 2,600 years. 2,600 years and lead all the way up to the return of Christ. This vision of four kingdoms came back to him later on, and we read about it in Daniel chapter 7. And this came up, and each time it came up, there was more detail given in it. During the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's successor, one of his successors, King Belshazzar, Daniel had a dream. And this is how it went. Verse 1 of Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. And he said, I, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. So now he's going to have the same dream 
But instead of different parts of the image, each kingdom is going to be represented by a different animal. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I watched until its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Perhaps referring to Nebuchadnezzar, how for seven years he lost his, 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 his human faculties and, and lived like a beast. And then it came back to him. And even a, a, a certain understanding of, of God. And a level of relationship with God. And understanding who God was after that trial that he had. And verse 5, suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. And this, of course, is the again the Persian Empire that came after the Babylonians. Verse 6, after this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The Greco-Macedonian Empire was known for its speed and for the, 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 the quickness that it could attack and it could cover long distances like a leopard. And four wings of a bird, it was broken into four parts after Alexander's death. The beast also had four heads, and a dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. Different from all the beasts that was before it, and it had ten horns. And I was considering the horns, wondering about those horns. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were like eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Interesting, Daniel was given a little bit more understanding this time. Within this fourth beast, the Roman Empire, there was a little horn that came up that spoke great pompous words that had eyes like the eyes of a man, that was able to uproot three kings. And when we look at history, it clearly was a, a power that, 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 reigned, that had influence over the Roman Empire. <clears throat> and we see it was a church, a Catholic church, that was able to uproot the, um, the, the, the Vandals and the Heruli and the Ostrogoths that were had taken over after Rome fell. So there's more detail after each time when, when uh, Daniel had this understanding of the vision. But notice again how the dream ends. Verse 9, And I watched till thrones were put in a place. The dream does not end with this terrible beast. It does not end with the Roman Empire. It ends with another kingdom coming. The Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Remember, Dr. Meredith referred to that this morning. Read it in Revelation. It's talking about the great God. The court was seated. The books were open. I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words 
which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Where will this system end? It will end in destruction. It will be destroyed. It will be burned. It will be no more. Verse 13. And I was also watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In verse 17, also he said, The great beasts which are four are four kings that arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. You know, the message is that, yes, there is going to be a very difficult one last resurrection of the Roman Empire before the end. But God's kingdom will be set up. As we heard in the special music, King All Glorious. And the saints will be a part of it. There's a tremendous message here, even with the very dark message that comes first. God will reign supreme. And this day helps us to understand that. There is a warning, but there is hope. There is darkness, but there is promise. And what a tremendous blessing it is that we understand this day. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Because John really took up where Daniel left off. And in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. He saw one beast. But had all the attributes of the four beasts. Now why was that? Because he was looking at it from a time In the future, he was looking at it by the time John was living, the first three beasts had already come and gone. And when the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians, they did not destroy them, they absorbed them. And when the Greco-Macedonian Empire defeated the Persians, they did not destroy them, they absorbed them. And when the Romans defeated the Greeks, they absorbed them. So by the time we come to the time of the Apostle John... The beast has the traits and the attributes of all four. And that's why it's one beast with these many different attributes. Notice he says, uh, Revelation 13, verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Remember one of the beasts earlier, the Greco-Macedonian, was like a leopard. But his feet were like the feet of a bear, just like we read about the Persians before. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. That was from the Babylonians. The dragon gave him his, his power and his throne and his great authority. So Satan the devil was influencing this this power 
And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. So something struck this beast and it died. It ended. It collapsed. And then it was revived. We understand this to be the, the, the end of the Roman Empire in 476 A.D. When it died. But then it was wounded. It was healed. Something revived it. Something brought it back to life in a slightly different form. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? Let's go a little further. In a Revelation 17. We're just skimming the surface here. <clears throat> Much more detail again in the booklet about the beasts of Revelation. But there's something I want to get to here. In Revelation 17 and verse 9. Because by the time we get to Revelation 17 and verse 9. I'm sorry. Revelation 17 and, and verse 1. Now we're seeing the beast when it was healed. Now we're seeing the beast when it was revived. And what revived it? What brought it back to life? Verse 1, Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me into the, away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. A woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So now the beast is not only the Roman Empire, it is fully under the influence of the woman, the false church. The apostate church. Full of names of blasphemy with seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. In the year 554, the emperor Justinian, reigning from Constantinople, united the kingdom. United the empire. With the help of the Pope. And thus began the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. So called. Nothing holy about it. But that's what the name was. The so called Holy Roman Empire. In verse 7. The angel said to me. Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her. Which has the seven heads. And the ten horns, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Remember again what we read this morning about the beast coming out of the bottomless pit, inspired, influenced by Satan the devil to bring humanity to the edge of annihilation. This is that same beast. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was 
and is not, and yet is. The beast that died in 476, and yet was revived in 554 by Justinian. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen and one is. What were the seven kings of the Holy Roman Empire? What were the five that had fallen? Justinian, 554, he began to, he he united the empire. Charlemagne was also crowned uh, emperor over the Holy Roman Empire in 800 A.D. Otto the Great was the third in 962 A.D. Charles V, the fourth in 1530 A.D. Napoleon was the fifth, and his reign ended in 1814. Those are the five that had fallen. And then it says one is and the other is not yet come. Now what could this possibly mean? You know, just like Daniel's prophecies were intended to point to the end time primarily. Remember, they all ended in what? The fifth kingdom in Christ taking over the rock which is is cut out without hands and crushes the other kingdoms. John's prophecy here was also intended to be understood from the perspective of the 20th century. In particular, the perspective of the 1930s. In the 1930s, when Mr. Armstrong became aware of these prophecies, who was on the rise? Hitler and Mussolini. The Hitler and Mussolini Axis powers, that resurrection was the sixth and was in full swing. It's plain as day. If we understand that this prophecy right here in Revelation 17 and verse 10 was to be opened in the 1930s, how in the world could otherwise Mr. Armstrong say, Germany will rise again? How could he write, even in the time of World War II, that Germany will rise one more time? It was because this was meant to be understood at the time when he began to preach. Now, some have ridiculed that. Some have said, well, that's presumptuous. How could you possibly say that the Bible is written for, you know, one particular person to understand in one particular time? Well, why wouldn't it be? When much of the focus of the prophecies regarding the beast are focused on the end time. And why wouldn't it be when the beast will usher in the worst time of trouble ever? And why wouldn't it be when God is opening up a work to be done and understanding to be understood? so that the work can be published. And why wouldn't it be when, let's hold your place there and go back to Daniel chapter 12, when it says right in Daniel 12, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, 
at that time, talking about the end, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. He again is referring to the, the great tribulation, the worst time of, of, of trouble ever. And everyone who is found written in the book will be delivered. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake the resurrection. He's talking about Christ's kingdom coming on earth. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He's talking about a work being done. He's talking about a church, a people who are striving to help others repent. But notice in verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And then Daniel, notice what he said in verse 8. Although I heard, I did not understand. And I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And it was repeated, verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. They were sealed to him. He was not to understand, but they would be opened in the time of the end. Brethren, is it not unthinkable that God would open the understanding for the generation that needs to know? The generation that needs to prepare for the worst time of trouble ever and even warn the world about the worst time of trouble ever. Is it so presumptuous that that we would think that this was understanding was opened in the time of the beginning of the Philadelphian era, the beginning of a work that published this warning. Mr. Armstrong trumpeted that there are five that have fallen. One is Hitler and Mussolini and Germany will rise again describing the Holy Roman Empire, so-called, written by the, by the woman. You know, we need to be grateful for what we have received. What we heard this morning, what we hear every holy day, what we hear every Sabbath, what we watch on the telecast and read in the magazine, the understanding of what's happening in our day and what has been revealed in our time. And what we've been given from those who came before because of the prophecies that God put in the Bible and opened to Mr. Armstrong and others who held up his arms, like Dr. Meredith. What a tremendous heritage that we've been given. Going back to Revelation 17 and verse uh, again, he says, <clears throat> five have fallen, one is, verse 10, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So this last power will be powerful, but will be short. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven is, is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour 
as kings with the beast. So it will be a short-lived empire. Powerful, but short. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords, King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Two things we learn here. Why are we looking for ten kings or ten leaders in Europe? Because the Lord will destroy ten kings when he comes back. Jesus Christ will overcome and conquer ten kings who have given their power to the beast. It's not our imagination. It's right there. But again, he will overcome them. How does the story end? Christ's kingdom reigning on earth and the saints with him. Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Same focus. It ends with the good news. After the the difficult times. The Feast of Trumpets teaches us about this time of great war ending this age but also culminating in the return of Christ to set up his kingdom with the saints reigning with him. Again, Germany is peace-loving today. It's different today. Germany is a responsible country. It's doing well. It's our ally. How can we be so sure that this is going to happen? You know, it's good for us in this generation to stop and think that just over 70 years ago, again, Dr. Meredith brought this out, just over 70 years ago, most of us don't have this memory, but some do, what was happening in Europe? The world was locked in a life-or-death struggle. It wasn't that long ago, just over 70 years 31 countries, I believe, 50 million dead. Some estimates are many more than that as a result of World War II. But, you know, a few decades go by, a couple of generations. It's easy to forget. Let's look at some of what's been happening in the time from 1945 until now through some of the articles that were written in the Plain Truth, the Good News, other other magazines. Fascinating to see when you put it all together. You know, there's so many things that are happening right in front of us that it's easy to lo- lose perspective of the forest because we see so many trees going by us so quickly. Back in 1952, there was an article uh, written by Dr. Hay in the Good News magazine entitled, Will German Rearmament Stop Russia? Interesting question. You know, seven years after the end of the war, and yet now the focus was on Russia, and Russia was the big threat, and Russia was on the move, and there was a need to stop Russia and have a buffer against Russia and encircle Russia. And so one of the solutions was rearm Germany. Not everybody was happy. He said this, European defenses are being strengthened financially, economically, and politically. American strength is building a gigantic war machine in Europe ostensibly to protect civilization. We are endeavoring to rearm our former foes, Germany and Italy. 
Does America dare arm Germany? Our leading generals in Europe adamantly warn that Germany is a calculated risk. What will a Germany armed with American help think of her new power? Interesting question. You know, today, we don't think anything of having missiles and tanks and battalions in in Germany because we're looking from decades later. But at that time, seven years after the war, This was a major, major issue. Sixteen years later, here's an article in The Plain Truth in 1968. West Germany's finance minister, Franz Joseph Strauss, was quoted as saying, We want more members in the common market, but members who are ready and prepared to join us on the way toward a political integration with the long-run goal of the United States of Europe. You know, some made fun of Mr. Armstrong for coining this term, the United States of Europe. Well, guess what? Some of the Europeans were using it. They were the ones who were talking about a United States of Europe, and they weren't hiding it at all. And they even hinted about military capacity in that United States of Europe. He said, same article, I believe the Europeans should take more responsibility for their defense in a reorganized and modernized NATO. I think the Europeans have the basic resources for uniting to take a greater share of this burden. And what are we hearing today? The same thing, that the Europeans need to take care of their own defense, right? And they're doing that more and more. In 1968, we see an article how Germany was rebounding economically. Uh, Mr. Armstrong wrote in, um, in The Plain Truth, 1968, December. He said, French President de Gaulle's dream of grandeur of undisputed French leadership in Europe is over. A noted French author admitted dejectedly the French have lost, quote, the most important battle against the Germans the economic one. You know, we take for granted today that the Germans are a dominant economic power in Europe, but there was a time when France was dominant. But then Germany passed them, and it it was a big deal, a major deal. Same article. The Times of London wrote, The primacy of power in Europe has passed from Paris to Bonn. As West German Foreign Minister Willie Brandt said early in November, this nation must cease being an economic giant and a political dwarf. So little by little, what was happening even back then, step-by-step progress, even though Germany wasn't even united. 1981, now we're 36 years after the war. Mr. Gene Hogberg wrote, In the plain truth, people in the free world do not fully comprehend West Germany's stature today. The Federal Republic of Germany is by many important yardsticks the world's premier financial and commercial power. West Germany possesses the world's greatest currency reserves, the second largest gold reserves, the world's biggest exports per capita, and the hardest currency of any major industrial country. That was in 1981. Would you say Germany was... On the rise. The New York Times Magazine was quoted as saying, Inevitably, 
German, the leader of, the, of Western Europe, and perhaps they are being led to be a kind of associate superpower. In 1989, something happened. And those of you who were around at that time remember the Berlin Wall came down. Shocking. Unbelievable. Unexpected. The media went crazy. They couldn't foresee this. There was a book written by a gentleman named Alan Watson in 92 who said, When unification came, no one had expected it. Few had anticipated it, and abroad it was not greeted with universal acclaim. In the United Kingdom, then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher had grave reservations. She feared the power of a united Germany and said so. Margaret Thatcher was clearly concerned and called a conference to discuss the German national character, but neither she nor any other Western leader had any power to alter events. Margaret Thatcher was concerned. But you know, it was becoming not trendy to be concerned about Germany. After all, they're so nice. They're our friends. They're our allies. Let's not think about World War II anymore. That's so past. Let's think about the future. But it would have been only 44 years since the Nazis have been crushed. 44 years. How quickly memories fade. Interesting that he said no one had expected it. But there was an editorial that appeared in a Tennessee newspaper, December 7, 1989. It was entitled, What Else Was Armstrong Right About? Some of you remember seeing that. Mr. O'Gwen quotes the article in this booklet. This is what someone said, a man named David Johnson. Like a great many Americans, I've been watching the current political situation in East Germany with interest. While many have expressed surprise at the recent events and at East and West Germany, I have to admit I haven't been too surprised by these events. The reason I haven't been particularly surprised is for years I've occasionally read the publications of a Pasadena, California-based church called the Worldwide Church of God. Its founder, the late Herbert Armstrong, who remained the active chancellor of that church until he was in his 90s, wrote a number of articles and booklets on the subject of German unification and what he called a United States of Europe. Armstrong's critics' writings were often deemed unbelievable and ridiculous by some critics, usually the leaders of Protestant churches and the Catholic Church. But as I watched the tide of sweeping changes that have enveloped East Germany in recent weeks, I'm reminded of what now appears to be some very accurate predictions Armstrong made about the future of Europe. Young people especially, think about it. Mr. Armstrong's writings and the writings of the work and the telecast and the broadcast had made an impact. People remembered. Some people remembered Do we feel like sometimes, well, no one's really noticing what we're doing? People are listening. And every ounce of effort that we put in getting this message out is one more opportunity for one person to, we don't know when, maybe in the tribulation, 
maybe in the great white throne judgment period, for one person to repent, to remember, I remember I was told this. Why are we doing this work? So someday, everyone will respond. And they will someday. He says Armstrong predicted that the Berlin Wall would someday come down. That's happened. His words. And that the two German states would once again reunite into a powerful nation. That's happened. At least in part. His words. He also predicted that all the European countries would someday unite in a new and powerful United States of Europe. His words, that's in the process of happening. On top of all that, the church chancellor predicted a resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. I can't help but wonder at the fact that things are developing in East Germany the way Armstrong predicted, and I can't help but wonder what else he might turn out to be right about. What else might he be right about? Is our effort in vain? Does our work make a difference? Who's watching now? Who's listening now? Even if they don't respond, we have no idea. We're trying to get it out. We're trying to plant seeds. So someday that will take root. God's word does not come back empty without accomplishing his mission. How much do we appreciate the precious, precious knowledge we have today, the precious knowledge the church had back then, and what we have inherited through no good thing of our own? You know, one interesting thing, the unification of Germany occurred right when the church was distracted by the most significant internal disaster of the modern era. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, the church had already been heading into into a series of events where the administration of that time was taking it into a we don't want to preach prophecy, we don't want to preach doom and gloom, we don't want to preach bad news, we want to preach good news. And so many tens of thousands of our brethren were distracted by this stuff. And one of the biggest prophetic events of our time happened. And tens of thousands of our brethren walked away as if it didn't matter anymore. I don't think it's a coincidence that this happened when the church was falling apart. Satan knows. Satan tries to do things, and, and, and God allows him to. Uh, the timing to be a test. When Europe was surging forward as the church at that time was pulling back on talking about prophecy. But... Dr. Meredith revived the work, and we've had the opportunity to hold up his arms and other leaders with him. What an amazing opportunity. What happened next after that? Well, the big news toward the end of the 1990s was the introduction of the euro. In um, 
April 27, 1998, there was an article from the Business Week special report. It said this, the euro, in one, this is a title, in one fell swoop it will create the world's second largest economic zone. The potential benefits are limitless and so are the risks. It said this, in a bold step toward eventual political union, Europe is launching a monetary revolution. On May 2nd, 11 countries, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Ireland, the Netherlands, Austria, Belgium, Finland, Portugal, Luxembourg, will set the terms under which they will trade their national money for an untested currency, the euro. They are sacrificing their most sovereign national power, the right to issue their own money. Do, you, do we remember hearing or reading about something that ten kings would give up, voluntarily give their power? Way back in 1999, the beginnings of these, they were sacrificing their most sovereign national power, the right to issue money. Instead, a European central bank will run the European Monetary Union. In essence, they have handcuffed their government to a European future. The only way out is to quit, and no nation shows signs of doing that. The economic shockwaves will shake Europe to its foundations. You know, today, the euro is 15 or 16 years old. No big deal. It's not big news anymore. It's a fact of life. But it was amazing. How did Europeans themselves see the euro back in 1998? Francis de Klerk, 42, the CEO of Keyware Technologies in Brussels, said, The euro will open new markets as never before. Ever since the Roman Empire, we haven't had a chance to build this kind of strength. The euro is a source of renewal. Newsweek had a special issue that came out at that time. And the title was, What Strange Beast? Interesting. They were talking about the euro. They were talking about the European Union. Whether you love the euro or hate it, know this. Nothing so big has ever happened before. Now, I understand magazine article writers and title writers, you know, think in hyperbole. But he said, nothing so big has ever happened before. Do we get just sort of lulled to sleep by the big events that are happening around us? When the Holy Roman Empire, so-called, is forming right in front of our eyes. Michael Hirsch is the writer. He said, through the pageantry of European history, the long progress of empires and kings, one fact stands out. No single regime has ever united the entire continent. The Romans never civilized the German tribes. The Ottoman Turks were halted at the gates of Vienna. Napoleon and Hitler were defeated by forces of arms. And so it has gone for more than a thousand years as warlords and tyrants rose to near hegemony, usually upon tides of blood, all in the end failed. Now a new millennium will mark a sharp break from the pattern of history. What Charlemagne and his successors failed to achieve violently will be accomplished in partial measure peacefully. Amazing. 54 years after the end of the war, they were comparing the euro as something that even Charlemagne had not accomplished. Brethren, do we get a picture of what's happening before our eyes. <clears throat> All the strings are being pulled. Let's keep moving on. In 20, 
1908. You remember the United States suffered a debilitating financial collapse, but it was worse in Europe, wasn't it? For Greece and Italy and Spain and Ireland and France, people outside of banks waiting in line to get their money, life savings being wiped out, their jobs being gone. And what was the response? There needed to be a coordinated response in the Eurozone crisis to save the whole system to help the southern tier nations, right? And this is what German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder said in 2011. He said, The current economic crisis makes it relentlessly clear we cannot have a common currency zone without a common fiscal, economic, and social policy. We will have to give up national sovereignty. 2011. And by the way, the article was called Former German Leader Calls for United States of Europe. Who's laughing now? Was Mr. Armstrong just making this all up? In other words, if you want to save the euro, you've got to give up more power. You've got to give up national sovereignty. Not only do you give up the right to print your own money, you've got to give up the right to have any say in your fiscal policy. Because that's going to come from a common headquarters overseeing the eurozone. And after much wrangling and hand-wringing, the euro being taken to the brink, the EU, EU stepped in and bailed out the southern European economies, and that's code word for Germany stepped in and bailed out the southern economies. Because Germany has the gold. They've got the money. And in 2013, this came out, <clears throat> explaining that from the the Irish Independent newspaper. Since Germany is providing the financial safety net for the whole Eurozone, no one is going to argue with them running everything. You know, when you're paying the bills, you get to decide what happens, right? And once Germany started paying the bills, they're calling the shots. But that didn't stop it. Two years later, notice what Chancellor Angela Merkel was being called in 2013. She was being referred to as Europe's most impressive politician, the most powerful woman in the world, and the political mastermind who, using the European Union as her vehicle, has succeeded where Bismarck, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and Hitler failed, turning an entire continent into a greater German empire. 2013. Now, no need to get alarmed. All this concentrated muscle in Central Europe, no, don't, don't worry about it. Never mind what the Bible says about the servant being, sorry, the borrower being servant to the lender. Don't worry about that. Germany is on our team. Germany is our ally. U.S., Britain, Germany, we're all in the same alliance. Well, for now. In 2014, the German Minister of the Economy called for, quote, the establishment of an EU armament industry with a strong German base independent of the USA. You can see the steps happening one after another. 
the economic strength, the political strength, the military strength. In fact, a year ago, June 22nd in 2015, <clears throat> U.S. Defense Sec Secretary Ashton Carter gave a speech in Berlin and he praised Germany's steps in taking more of a leadership role militarily. And he urged the Germans to invest even more money into defense, saying that Germany should, quote, bolster its defense spending to ensure that Germany's defense investments match Germany's leadership role. So, Germany, as long as your leadership role is up here, you know what? You should also be matching it with your military power to be in, li in line with your leadership, the, the, the status quo. You know what? And it all makes sense because we don't have money to support them. We don't have money to, to be the world's policemen, right? So why not let Germany foot the bill for Europe's defense? It all makes perfect sense. And it's all logical. And it all sounds great until you look at Bible prophecy. And you look at history a little over 70 years ago when the free world almost lost it, almost was engulfed in darkness. Earlier this year, April 20th, 2016, there was an article that came out they said the German and Dutch armies and navies are poised to merge. Now, merge is an interesting word. You know, when you have a merger between two companies, what happens? One company is in charge. One company decides who gets fired and who doesn't, right? When two armies merge, what happens? The article goes on to say the German and Dutch armies and navies are poised to merge with two Dutch units already coming under German command. How is that merger going to work out? Last June, Great Britain voted to leave the European Union. There was a lot of clatter in the news. You remember just before the vote about secret plans for a, an, a Euro army that were being kept from the public because that might influence the vote and that might make more people want to leave the European Union. That would antagonize the British even more, push an exit vote. It's interesting, after the vote, at first there was a lot of the, the, the sky is falling. This is awful. The British left. Within about two days, the European leaders were saying, let's get back to work, and now the British are out of the way so we can go further. September 6, 2016, just a few weeks ago, Europe forges ahead with plans for EU army. <clears throat> From the Telegraph, it says, Europe is planning to forge ahead with plans for an EU army that some fear could eventually displace NATO with senior officials in Brussels urging EU member states to capitalize, capitalize on the political space left by Britain's decision to vote to leave. What is that talking about? They're saying that as long as Britain was a part of the European Union, Britain would not stand for it. But now that they're gone, we can move forward. 
There's political space. Isn't that a nice way of saying things? Frederica Mogherini, the EU's foreign policy chief, is preparing to forward a timetable setting out steps to create EU military structures to act autonomously from NATO. Europe's top diplomat reportedly told colleagues that the military plan built by some countries as the foundation of a European army represented a chance for the EU to relaunch itself after the shocking Brexit vote. We have the political space today to do things that were not really doable in previous years, Ms. Mogherini told EU ambassadors. Brethren, think about what's happened in the last 70-plus years, almost too much to take in, to absorb, to keep perspective about. And that's why I wanted to read these articles so we see the span of things that have been happening You know, it's all peaceful, it's all good, it's all magnanimous. Germany has let in a million refugees from the Middle East. Germany is fighting terrorism. They're sending troops to other countries to fight terrorists. Germany is our ally, is our friend. So why is this important? And why discuss it on the Feast of Trumpets? You know, God loves the Germans. They're made in his image, but he's also going to use them, as we heard this morning, to correct our people. Because he loves us too. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 5. We don't find the name Germany in the Bible, but we recognize them from their ancient name, Assyria. And just as God used Assyria anciently to correct Israel, back in 721 A.D., B.C., rather, he'll do the same thing in the future, and that's where this is all leading. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send them against an ungodly nation, and we are that ungodly nation. We are the people who are going to be corrected by the Assyrians. And against the people of my wrath, I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This happened once before. It's going to happen again. That's why we're doing the work. That's why this work has a strong warning message, not just smooth words of peace. But rather, you need to repent. God is serious. He's sending a punishing nation against you because of our rebellion and resistance to his laws. Well, guess what the other part of our message is? Well, to Assyria. Notice in verse 7. He does not yet mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. And he says in verse 12, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, By the strength of my hand I've done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. I have removed the boundaries of the people. I have robbed their treasuries. I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. 
You know, our message is not just to Israel, but to Assyria and to the whole world, isn't it? Because all will get caught up in one way or the other with the events that are going to happen because of this final revival of this empire and suffer horribly. Our message is for the whole world because the whole world will be drawn into this. Let's turn over into Revelation. Dr. Meredith was reading in chapter 8 about the trumpet blasts. Let's go to the fifth trumpet. He, he read through them. We won't read all of them because we've, we've gone over them before. But Revelation 9 and verse 1, The fifth angel sounded. I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. What comes out of the bottomless pit? It's the same system we were talking about. It's inspired, it's influenced by the demons, by Satan, the devil. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit, and they came out like locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power, and they were commanded not to harm the grass of the, of the earth or any green thing, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, and they torment them for five months a horrible, horrifying emergence in a, in, a, in a powerful way of this beast when the fifth angel sounds. And, of course, the sixth angel, as we heard, is going to be this response from the Asian conglomeration. And there will be World War III. And it will be horrifying. As we heard, a third of mankind will be killed. But it will end. It will end by the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your power and reigned. The same theme that we saw in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, that these four powers will end in Christ taking over and setting up his kingdom. And that's what we want to be a part of. And that's what we're announcing. And that's what we're preparing for. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. There is a reward. There's a tremendous reward for those who are willing to be a part of the gospel message, preaching this to the world. The warning to Israel, the warning to Assyria, the warning to the world about what's coming and all the pieces that are being put together. They're not in the, their final form yet, but they are coming. 
You would reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Turn over to Revelation 14 and verse 19. I'm sorry, Revelation 19. Revelation 19. What's the end of this system? What's going to happen? The beast will be given to the flame. He says in verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. But the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. This system will fail. It will end after it takes humanity to the edge of annihilation. That's the great heritage of the systems of man who are described as beasts, wild beasts. But they're just men. They cannot fight against God. In the end... They're just flesh. And the beast, this individual and the false prophet, will be burned up. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. You know, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be grateful for that we have been given. When Christ intervenes, he won't hold back. He's patient, he's loving, but when he comes, he will do the job completely. And all those who haven't repented by that time and stopped the madness, they'll they'll be destroyed. If they don't want to submit to him, they'll be destroyed. And he will set up a kingdom, and it will be different. We really can't end the story of Assyria without going to Isaiah 19, though. Isaiah 19. Because God does love the Germans, just like He loves the Australians, New Zealanders, Ethiopians, Chinese, Finlanders. Is that what you call someone from Finland? He loves everyone. He does not hate the Germans. And you know what? He's going to use the Germans in the future. Isaiah 19 and verse 22, we read, The Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord. He will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway. This is talking about after Christ's kingdom, that kingdom which will never end, the kingdom that the saints will be a part of, that kingdom will be established and a highway will be set up from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. I can just imagine it, you know. When all of this comes to pass, when Christ is sitting down with Germans and Arabs and those who are fighting the king of the north, the king of the south, those who are mortal enemies before, and he gives them each a shovel. And he says, dig this hole. 
He says, put up this post. Knock down this wall. Erect this new wall. Work together. He says they're going to serve together. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. God doesn't hate the Germans. Actually, he's going to use them. Why? Because they work hard. He's going to use them to help rebuild the world that they had a part in destroying. And what a powerful lesson that will be. And what a powerful lesson it will be when he shows the whole world that Assyria and Egypt and Israel can work together. And if they can work together after Assyria was at Israel's throat and at at Egypt's throat, if they can work together, anybody can work together. What a powerful example that'll be. You know, back in 1962, Dr. Hay made an interesting statement about the German people. He said this, The German Reich long endured as the oldest political institution in Europe, older than the government of France or England by centuries. The German people called their Reich the Holy Roman Empire, It bore rule over Europe for a thousand years. This holy Roman Empire of the German people was officially designated by the church in the Middle Ages as the kingdom of God on earth. Of course it wasn't. That's going to come later. Its citizens, the Germans, felt themselves true Romans and bearers of the Christian Reich or kingdom. They were the chosen people. They considered themselves the chosen people on a mission for the world. A more recent publication, a book came out just last year, The Paradox of German Power. It said this, The idea of German exceptionalism includes the idea that German culture should in some as yet unspecified way find global expression. Boy, it will find global expression, all right, in a few short years. In a very horrible way. But he says, in particular, nationalists imagine that in realizing its own identity, Germany would not just liberate itself, but also redeem the whole world, especially the world beyond the West. This sense of a historic German mission was memorably expressed in the words of the 1861 poem by Emanuel Giebel, Deutschland's Beruf, Germany's Mission. Und es mag am deutschen Wesen einmal nach die Welt genessen. Probably only one of you knows what I just said. I don't know what I said. I'm going to read the translation. German sounds familiar to my ears, but unfortunately I don't speak it. Because I heard it from my great-grandmother. But here's the translation. The essence of the German nation will one day be the world's salvation. That's what one of the German poets said in 1861. You know, Germany hasn't got it right yet. 
They've been misguided. They've been misled. They've been influenced by this evil, deceptive spirit. That's why it's described as coming out of the bottomless pit. But they will be a part of the world's salvation, not the way they think, but they will be used. And that's exciting. That's exciting. You know, the Feast of Trumpets is an awesome time. It truly is awesome and terrible and and frightening even. Many things that will happen. But to God's people and to all those who repent, they don't have to be dark days. They are days of hope and promise and renewal and redemption. Let's make sure that we, brethren, are learning the lessons we need to learn from this day, that we're taking the lessons and taking the understanding that we've been given and holding it as precious and putting it forward in the work that we are doing to the whole world. And let's make sure we are there to see the end of man's rule, man who rules like beasts, and the rise of Christ's rule. When God will use the Israelites, he'll use the Egyptians, he'll use the Assyrians to work together to build a new world. God speed that 